Uh, good afternoon. This is, oh, nope, we're good. Okay. Uh, it blinks when it mutes. Okay. Uh, this is the, uh, let's see, June 22nd, 2023. Tell me about your tech job podcast and uh, part of the iTech 350 summer class at SIU. And today we have um, a really cool guest in person. Uh, this is Commander Jessica Dwyer from the U.S. Air Force um, and Director of ROTC Detachment 205 mm -hmm. and uh, Faculty Chair of the Department. So considered a Director of the Department of Aerospace Studies. Director of yes, the sir. Department of Aerospace Studies here at SIU. Yes. And what college is that? We actually are direct reports to the provost. Oh, so, so you're your we, own kind of thing. We are our own, yep, kind of separate entity. Consider us a, a tenant unit here on okay. campus. Neat. Um, so tell us a little bit about yourself um, before we get started. Where are you from? Um, what do you like to do for fun? Okay. Uh, so originally from New Jersey, uh, Hillsborough, New Jersey, it's right in the center of the state, uh, kind of near Princeton, or if anybody's familiar with the Rutgers campus, it's a great place to grow up. We were about an hour from the Jersey shore. Um, no, nobody laughed out there about uh, the Jersey shore show. Uh, it's a great place to actually have fun in the summertime. Um, an hour from Philadelphia, an hour from Manhattan uh, in New York. And so it was really lots of different things that we could do growing up, um, kind of middle-class family uh, in the suburbs. <clears throat> and then uh, I went to college in uh, Virginia. So I went about six hours south to what's now University of Mary Washington in Fredericksburg, Virginia. Um, went there, I majored in physics. I played on the women's soccer team there, division three for about, uh, for four years, um, was the captain my last two years there. Um, and while I was in college, I was a sophomore, 9-11 happened. Okay. And I, you, I think I was, uh, I was a junior. Junior in college. Yes. All right. So we're, we're close in age. So you kind of know there's a bit of a standstill. And if you're paying attention to where I'm from, an hour from Manhattan uh, and Fredericksburg, Virginia is an hour south of Washington, D.C., had some connections there uh, for those two locations, at least for the, the attacks. And my uncle was working in Manhattan about a mile from the towers. And so he was there that day. Uh, and that's a whole nother podcast to tell his story. Uh, but there's a little bit of worry, obviously, going on when uh, when things happened. I was actually in my I always got to class early, so I was at my my biology class uh, doing some preparation. So I didn't know what had happened, and then our our professor had come in and let us know, and classes were canceled for the rest of the day. Um, <clears throat> but a lot of my friends and teammates were from the Northern Virginia area and the D.C. area, um, and so they were also pretty concerned about the well being of their family and loved ones. So, kind of rocked everybody's world. It's hard unless you're there. I mean. Cell phones were around, but all of those were kind of shut down. You couldn't make a call to check on anybody, even if you wanted to. And you were texting with like the T9 type. Of, <laughs> right. You yes. didn't have the ability to, you know, to Siri up a question to see no. what was going on. No, not at all. You had to like hit right A to, like to get C. You had to hit one number three times yep, to get exactly. to it. Um, so you're still, still paying by the text message. Right? You were. You know, <laughs> I had to wait till after nine o'clock to make a phone call for free. <laughs> not using my data. Um, so after that, I just, I felt compelled to, um, serve and to do something. I initially looked into joining the Peace Corps. Um, but I, when I thought about that, it, 
that was more of helping other countries get, you know, stood up right. and um, get on their feet. And I, but I wanted to do something for our nation. And so I looked at all of the services, being a physics major, the Air Force mission was best aligned with my personal interests. Um, I still talked to all the recruiters. The Navy never got back to me uh, until I'd already signed paperwork to okay. join the Air Force. Okay. Um, and uh, pretty much it wasn't guaranteed, but I was told that I would likely be a scientist in the Air Force. They were looking for people with that background at the time to fill that role. And had they been looking for that before 9-11 happened, I assume, or was this something kind of new that? Good question. I think it, I don't think 9-11 events uh, triggered anything additional for, for that for career field. Correct. Okay. Yeah. Um, I, I, something I always think of when, when I, when I talk to folks who are from the, you know, the, the metro uh, suburban area where you're close to Philly in an hour, like you said, mm -hmm. close to Manhattan, I think you go an hour from here, you're, you're hitting Paducah, <laughs> you're Nashville, Illinois, and Harrisburg, you know, and, and, and you guys grew up and you've got this city and that city, and you can go get the best food here and there and there in an hour and a half and be home for, you know, bedtime on a school night. So yes. I always, uh, I always thought that was, that was pretty cool. Driving through Delaware and realizing how close I was to everything a few years back was, um, it was, a, it's an interesting, uh, interesting kind of uh, experience for somebody from, from down here. It is great. Lots of history too at your fingertips, just with, you know, but yes. Yeah. yeah. I remember walking around Baltimore. I had a conference there uh, and just seeing some of the things around Baltimore was so cool. Yeah. We read about a lot of it in textbooks and then you can go see the Liberty Bell in Philly um, or, you know, my first assignment in the Air Force was in Bo outside of Boston, Massachusetts. Okay. And so kind of, you know, birthplace of the revolution and everything. And uh, it was really great to just Kind of walk those grounds and see those historical sites. Okay, so that I guess that leads to where we're at. You you finished up your schooling in Virginia, mm -hmm. uh, undergraduate degree, correct? And then you um, you you enlisted. Um, so commissioned. Commissioned. It's a okay. good distinction to make. Um, so in the military, you can enlist um, or you can commission and become an officer. Okay, gotcha. Um, so those are kind of the, the two different tracks, different requirements for each. Um, and uh, but I I chose the officer candidate route. Okay. Um, so uh, graduated, went to officer training school, which is in Montgomery, Alabama at Maxwell Air Force Base. Um, at the time, that was a three-month training program. And uh, so I already had my, my bachelor's degree. Uh, so that's something that's different. Uh, what I do here at SIU, it's an integrated program where our cadets are getting their bachelor's while they're also um, getting their military training and preparation to become second lieutenants in the Air Force or Space Force now. Uh, whereas I decided to join a little bit later after and graduate. correct after I got so as a sophomore, started talking to recruiters, signed paperwork um, my senior year. And we didn't have an ROTC program at the college where I was anyway. Okay. So that was the the fastest route to, to get my foot in the door. So after I completed my officer training school, my first assignment was at Hanscom Air Force Base, uh, as I mentioned, outside of Boston, Massachusetts. And I worked for the Space Weather Center of Excellence, it was called. Um, that's a an element of the Air Force Research Laboratory. So we have 10 directorates within the Air Force Research Laboratory around the uh, country. And so this was just one of those um, one of those offices that happened to be um, out, outside of Boston at Hanscom. Okay. And, and 
one thing I forgot to, to ask was, what was it like being, um, were you the captain of the softball? Or I'm, soccer. soccer. Yeah. Softball. I'm stuck in a softball. That's okay. I played softball soccer. in high school too. So yeah, welcome okay. it. <laughs> um, so what was it like um, as, as a, you know, an elite athlete while you were in school and kind of considering this, this future career move? Yeah, it was fun. Um, I played soccer ever since I was, I think I started in second or third grade and um kind of had been on teams that were good and teams that were bad um but i just always had fun playing and always wanted to challenge myself i wasn't sure if i'd even make make it to play on a college team um and so i just i don't know it was it was a ton of fun traveling getting to see other college campuses mm -hmm. meeting other girls from across the country as well i had a roommate from alaska wow. um, who came all the way out to virginia to play soccer. To play soccer. Yep. Um, and so it was really a fun, fun group of people. It added another level of challenge though, to keep up grades. You're on the road. Busy. Yep. Busy, uh, during the fall season at least. And, uh, so I just had to really, um, be disciplined, which I think was good preparation for being in the military, sure. uh, how I spent my time, how I managed my time. Um, I didn't really go out quite as much as my roommates did. Um, for multiple reasons, but one was just, I knew I had to put in a little extra work. I don't, I, physics is a pretty challenging yeah. uh, degree program as well. Uh, and I had pretty high, high expectations for myself. So, um, but soccer was, was a lot of fun. Um, and I'm really glad that I, I had that experience and, and made allowed time in my schedule to do that. So Good. It was fun. That's neat. Mm -hmm. um, okay. So back to your first, uh, you said outside of Boston, uh, what's, mm -hmm. what was it? Hanscom, Hanscom Air Force Hanscom Base. Hanscom Air, Air Force Base. Mm -hmm. um, and they bring you in as an, an officer? Correct. And what is your kind of official responsibility or role or title or what, what were you doing for that first? Good question. So as a second lieutenant, so that's the bottom of totem pole, bottom of the barrel officer, okay. um, where you come in and this is your first experience Um I can't say in the military, there are some people who enlist first and we call them prior enlisted, and then they become, they transition and become officers. Okay. Um, so there were um, a couple of folks I was working with at the time, but most of us were fresh out of college, fresh out of our commissioning source, whether they graduated from the Air Force Academy or ROTC or like myself, officer training school. So we were all kind of learning what the Air Force was like, how it was structured, how our unit was organized and the mission that they executed. So um, my first job was pretty cool. I worked in a solar disturbance section. And so there they were observing the sun's activity and how that affected the near earth satellite environment. Okay. And uh, we had a small research satellite that was on board a naval um, spacecraft. So it was a little, we were piggybacking, we say, on a Navy mission. And uh, it was called the Solar Mass Ejection Imager. So if you think about coronal mass ejections are the, you know, big, and if I had my, if I had a slide here, I'd, I'd have a video that would show you just how much, how many high, high energy particles are just spewing off uh, the surface of the sun. Um, those follow something called the solar wind and they would arrive here at earth and that can be detrimental to any sort of electronics that are either flying around the earth uh, orbiting around the earth or even if they're strong enough solar storm power grids and other things here on earth in the terrestrial uh, environment so um, our imager was trying to forecast 
um, from the onset of a solar storm, how long it would take those particles to arrive um, near Earth. And uh, had a mission to try to forecast within 72 hours. So, you know, you can say satellite X, and you may want to turn your sensors away or temporarily power down or something like that. Um, now, the interesting thing about being an officer in the Air Force is we move pretty frequently. Yeah. So I worked on that program for a couple of years, and then I had to say goodbye to it. Um, next, I went to graduate school, but um, it did outlast its initial lifetime. So it was uh, set to be on orbit for five years, and I think it went for nine, um, nine or so. So it almost doubled its lifespan. Um, I don't, I don't think we ever reached the seventy-two hour <laughs> goal, um, but we did still glean a lot of information from the data that we collected over. So, how long does it take for that that solar disruption to reach us? Yeah, so um, it kind of it can depend on how much. So one thing we learned about were like the angles. Um, so we have limb events. So if you're looking at the sun straight on, like it looks like a disc, just a flat mm -hmm. disc. Um, so there might be some limb events where you can see maybe there's a large storm that goes off to a side or down. And so those may come at a, a not as fast of a speed as if something was what we would call a halo event. And that's when something is direct, you know, directed right at earth. And it's kind of, it looks like a halo coming out uh, kind of like this. Um, and then later on in my um, graduate study, so from Hanscom, I went on to um, Dartmouth College and it was sponsored to get a master's degree. Um, still with the Air still Force. Still with the Air Force. So I- Them taking care of the bills. Yes. Awesome. So I was a, got paid to be a full-time student. Um, good, good job if you can get it. Good job if you can get it um, at an Ivy League school. I didn't know if I was going to complete the degree. To be completely honest, that was the hardest academic program I'd ever been in. Um, really challenging. But the research I was able to do there was still somewhat related um, to uh, space weather. And so there, my advisor was studying the Van Allen radiation belts. Okay. And so those are like two donuts, if you want to think of it like that, around the earth, where those high energy particles that come from the sun get trapped. And they kind of do this bouncing, you know, around the earth in this donut shape. There's an internal belt and an external belt. And we don't know a whole lot about why they're there, how they formed. Um, and so there's still ongoing research to better understand uh, their shape, their size, um, how they fluctuate. You know, they can kind of expand and contract as well. But again, we've got high high dollar assets that orbit through some of those um, radiation belts. And so we were trying to study those um, when I was in graduate school. And the neat thing about that was we used, so satellites are super expensive mm -hmm. to build, launch, um, maintain. Uh, so my advisor used high altitude balloons, okay. um, high altitude, long duration balloons. And I helped build um, a couple of things on that. So she, we launched some detectors um, down in the poles. So the, I, I was kind of going like this. So if you imagine the earth, I should have brought, I should have brought uh, props with me. <laughs> I didn't think about that. Um, so these, uh, these high energy particles bounce between the poles um, okay. like this. And so we can see the footprint would be like a circle, like in Antarctica or up in the Arctic. And so, um, my advisor had a research team go down to Antarctica to launch these high uh, high altitude, long duration balloons to follow the polar winds and collect data from these particles that were coming from the sun. 
Um, so I got to help build some of the um, wiring diagram, uh, wiring harnesses. So I did the diagramming, um, actually, you know, soldering cables and things like that. Uh, and then also some of the hardware that all of the um, different instruments would mount to that would then be launched to float around Antarctica. So, so that sounds a little bit more like an electrical engineer. A little bit, which I hadn't really had. I mean, I took an electronics class when okay. I was in college, but a funny story. Um, my father is uh, was, was a high school teacher before he retired. He taught um, industrial arts, um, so woodworking. Mm -hmm. He also taught mechanical drawing. And I, when I was a senior, I needed to take an elective and I signed up for my dad's mechanical drawing class. Okay. And then like right before that class started, I was like, I don't want to have my, it's my senior year. I don't want to have my dad as a teacher. So I switched uh, out of that and I was a library aide. Oh. <laughs> so I really, really wanted to take it easy. Senioritis had kicked in. And our librarian showed, saw me show up and she goes, what are you doing here? I said, well, I'm going to be your library. And I'm really excited. She goes, your father was so excited to have you in class. You are <laughs> not going to be a library. You are going to take that class. And I was like, okay. So <laughs> switch back. And lo and behold, the skills I learned in drafting class, because we did diagrams like that, uh, helped me however many years later in this graduate school program um, to draw. I mean, I did, I did a lot of them by hand. They weren't, you know, super complicated, but uh, I was able to do them by hand. And I remember working with one of the engineers and I turned in you know, my pretty graph paper, this thing, and he just went, it's like, usually we have computers to do that, you know? And I was like, yeah, but I don't know how to use cat. I never learned how to use cat or anything. Sure. Uh, I said, this is actually easier and faster for me. So here you go. He just couldn't believe it. These hand-drawn wiring diagrams. We had at my uh, Lincoln junior high school here in Carbondale, mm -hmm. long since demolished, uh, wood shop and drafting mm -hmm. as part of that. And that was one of my favorite things, uh, metal shop, plastics. Yep. And, and um, this is a memory I always, whenever it comes up, I have to share because it was a highlight of my junior high, which was other than otherwise completely terrible. Uh, <laughs> built a, uh, uh, took a piece of wood, turned it on a, a lathe, mm -hmm. made it into a nice cylinder, put a bottom on it, put a light pole on the top. And then my, um, the day came where I wired it and I had a bulb in there and I plugged it in in front of all the students in the class and it lit up and they all just ch ch clapped and cheered for me. And it was like the only thing that I remember positive about my teens. Oh, that's a tough time. That's a tough time of life, middle it, school. It is. For but everybody. Yes. But that's a quite an accomplishment. And I, I think I've wired uh, exactly zero <laughs> lamps since then, but I could, I could do it if I needed to. Maybe in the future. Yeah. Um, so when you were doing these research um, assignments, were you doing these kind of, um, were you selected to do these because these were things that the Air Force had interest in doing yes. the research on? Yes, good question. Okay. So first assignment, um, working in that solar disturbance section, that is funded by the Air Force Research Laboratory. Okay. I was the only military person, though, working in that section, which is not unusual for scientists and engineers uh, and program managers to we partner a lot with um, civilian institutions like universities defense contractors um, and, and things like that so i was the only military member um, but then we also had some people uh, we partnered with people in australia the uk uh, university of california san diego 
um, it was University of Birmingham in the UK, they were all part of this satellite research project. Um, so that was a really cool thing. And then there are also government civilians. So they are employed by the US government um, to work in these Department units. Department of uh, Part of the airport. So we do partner with the Department of the Energy as well. I, I haven't in my career, but okay. yes, we partner with them. Uh, National Security Agency, NSA, okay. um, those sorts of things too. Missile Defense Agency, um, those sorts of other government entities as well. So that was something that was funded by the Air Force. And then when I went to graduate school, um, I was given quite a bit of freedom to study what I wanted, but I chose to do something I already had a little bit of background knowledge in yeah. um, as well. Cause there, there were some of my classmates in my cohort. Um, they were, there was a lot of um, astronomy research going on, which like supernova and things like that, which Air Force, I mean, that, that affects, I guess, in a, in a different sense, uh, some of what, what our operations entail, but um, I want something a little, a little bit more directly related. Close mm -hmm. Literally. Yep. <laughs> Uh, neat. Very cool. Um, so then did you, you finished the, the, the master's from Dartmouth mm -hmm. and then did you immediately start a PhD or were you involved in good, other projects? Good question. So with the Air Force, when they sponsor an advanced academic degree, you pay that back with your time in service. Okay. So while um, I didn't have to pay out of pocket, I had to um, increase or extend my active duty service commitment which to me was never a problem because that's guaranteed employment uh, going forward. So I was happy to continue serving. And you liked what you were doing. And I liked what I was so, doing. Okay. Yes. Um, and so I was sponsored through the United States Air Force Academy. So I was completing that master's degree with the understanding that I would pay back that assignment or that degree program with a faculty position at the Air Force Academy. Okay. So Colorado in Colorado Springs, so okay. that's where I went from um, Hanover, New Hampshire, which is where Dartmouth is, across the country out to Colorado Springs. Okay. Mm -hmm. So you've been started out in Virginia for college. Mm -hmm. Then you went to Boston. Mm -hmm. Then you went to New Hampshire with mm -hmm. Dartmouth. And now you're going to Colorado, Colorado Springs. Springs. Got it. Good job. So tell us about that role. Teaching on the faculty. Yes. And, and were you as part of uh, your 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 grad studies, were you teaching assistants or you were just straight research assistant? Good question. So as a grad student, um, I didn't need the stipend. I didn't need to be a grad, like a TA, um, because right. I didn't need the money, which I think is a lot of times how that, how that works. Mm -hmm. um, and we're also kind of free labor for our advisors. Um, however, it was part of their degree program at Dartmouth that you would TA for at least one semester. Okay. Um, and so I, it was kind of a symbiotic relationship because then Dartmouth didn't have to pay me to be a TA. So they got, I was free labor for them yeah. uh, as well in that regard, but that was good preparation working with the undergraduate students at Dartmouth, um, which the course I was um, helping out with, it was a mechanics course and it was for um, students who were in the pre-med program. So there's a medical college there at Dartmouth. And so a lot of my students were pre-med. And so, because there are different kind of, I guess, levels of teaching physics, whether it's calculus-based or algebra-based or concept-based. Um, so this was a calculus-based um, introductory physics class. And so that was good uh, exposure to working with that demographic, maybe in anticipating types of questions or, or problems they might have, understanding the material um, to set me up 
for when I had my own my own course um, out at the Air Force Academy. So what were those courses you started teaching when you started the role there? Yep. So started off um, teaching the electric uh, introductory electricity and magnetism course. Um, so it's like so, the Department of Physics? Correct. I was in the Department of Physics and we share, uh, actually share that also with the meteorology. There is a meteorology major and coursework out at the Air Force Academy as well. We have weather officers in the Air Force. And they're not going to be on TV. Not quite. The They've got more important stuff. <laughs> no, some of them are like jumping out of airplanes with Army uh, folks to help uh, let them know what weather, what kind of weather is rolling in for you know conditions that they might be fighting under. Wow. Um, so yes, yeah, so there was uh, introductory um, electricity and magnetism, so magnetic forces, electric forces, energy, things like that, uh, and then also taught an introductory um, mechanics course. So um, again, energy forces, uh, motion, um, uh, cyclical motion, you know, things like that too. So um, it was it was a lot of fun. It's a challenge when you have to teach. You probably know this too. When you have to teach, it's one thing to be a student. And like take a quiz or a test or you know complete a homework set, but when you have to teach it, you have to know it like in and out and and the why. So a lot of times I could solve something, but the why I maybe didn't always fully understand myself. So that was very humbling actually yeah. to teach even at just an introductory level. Um, so that was uh, that was a lot of fun and it enhanced my understanding of the material. Um, going into you know, going into the classroom because you never know what somebody's going to ask. Right, and, and I mean that is that is a scary thing because you you know I, even in this class I know there's some students who have some tremendous experience in technology and even cybersecurity, um, and yeah you just have to be able to know that you don't know something and be willing to say that. And I was not afraid to do that. That was one of the first things they said was don't try to fake it. <laughs> just tell them that's I'll get back to you. And I and I had to do that, and it shows them that we're we're not perfect. Um, and that, and I, I tried to encourage them to, to ask that, like, try, try to stump me, you know, <laughs> so it was good. Cool. Um, so how long did you teach there? And then what happened? I was there for three years total. The first two years I was in the classroom. And then, um, my last year I got pulled up to be what's called the executive officer for the dean of faculty. So that would be equivalent to like the provost here. Okay. Um, so I was her executive officer. So I helped, um, prepare memo, memos for her, review evaluations of all the other officers that and, and civilians too, who kind of fell under her purview. Um, and just, you know, kind of a, um, a gatekeeper, if you will, to, to the Dean or the, or the provost here to try to help, you know, resolve things that from what my level, what I could, and if I couldn't, um, you know, maybe set up an appointment, they could work directly uh, with her. And so that was, that was also a, an eye-opening experience because I got to learn about things outside of my career field because there you're working at whole university. Mm -hmm. uh, at the time they had 22 departments, they, there might be more now. Um, and just understanding the needs of each department was unique at times. And sometimes it was a collective, we've got this going on and we need some support or we need some help. Um, and then we kind of would liaise with the other mission partners on campus there. And so that in there was the Dean of Faculty, there's the Commandant of Cadets, so that's where all of the military training happens at the Academy, and then uh, the um, Athletic Department as well. So that's where all the physical education classes were taught, and they do have intercollegiate sports there as well. Um, and so those were the, the three mission partners that fell under the superintendent 
who is a three. So I worked for a one-star general. That's who, uh, that's the Dean's position. Mm -hmm. Uh, the commandant is a one-star and then they, um, the athletic director is a civilian and usually they've historically been retired military though as well. And then the superintendent at the Air Force Academy is a three-star Lieutenant general, um, and then that would be the equivalent of like the chancellor here at okay. SIU. So they oversee the entire entire operation, um, even beyond the the just the the academy's instruction area. It's the whole base because um, there are other things on a military base uh, like daycare for the people who work there, uh, a grocery store. Um, a, a base exchange, which is kind of like a Walmart or something, um, recreation facilities, uh, a trailer kit, you know, you can come because the academy is a beautiful grounds. And so people would come with their campers and hike and fish and things like that. So the, the three-star oversees uh, really the entire installation, their installation commander, as well as the president of a, of a university. So they've got a lot of things on their plate. <laughs> That um, and and so when you were there, did you get to spend a lot of time outside the base exploring Colorado and checking out some we, of the things that it had to offer? We did. There's some really beautiful natural um, phenomena out there, whether it's the mountains or lakes or sand dunes, hot springs. Um, there are a lot of really cool uh, geological features that we did try try to to see. Now that was my. Um, I guess third military assignment and I was starting to learn not to save all those fun things until the end because you kind of have a bucket list of I want to see this and check that out and then it would be like our last couple months and we're like we haven't made it to Steamboat Springs or we haven't made it to Crested Butte yet in Colorado and so we're trying to pack it in um, but uh, we we my husband and I um, try to get that we yeah we got married while we were out there some other life things happen. <laughs> <laughs> skipped over. Um, but uh, yeah, so we did try our best to get out there and just see, you know, ski, skiing and snowboarding, obviously in the winter as well, very popular uh, activity. So yeah. Well, good, good, good. And so that was um, before you entered the PhD? Correct. Okay. So from there, um, I competed to get, uh, get selected to continue education and get a PhD. It's funny because I finished one, get your undergrad and you're like, oh, I'm done. I never exactly. have to take another yeah. final again in my life. Uh, and then I get into the Air Force and this opportunity to go get a master's and teach because um, I thought I was going to be a high school science teacher when okay. I was an undergrad. I, never, I didn't say that, but uh, I thought I was just going to go you know, teach high school. So now I was able to serve and teach at the same time. So that was a great bonus. Finished the master's program. As I mentioned, that was it's probably to this day, the hardest thing I've had to, to do, uh, complete successfully. It was very challenging for me. Um, so I'm like, all right, never, never go back to school again. And then this PhD opportunity came up. Um, but I wanted to study, uh, kind of get out of the hard science I'll say. And I was interested in, in education research. And so, um, I kind of, I don't want to say made a deal. Cause I, I don't want to make it sound like I had the upper hand. The air force will tell you what you're going to do, sure. but I was able to negotiate maybe, um, studying something that was a little more of a social science, which was physics education research. And how can we teach physics better? Cause the one thing I learned was that a lot of students are afraid of it. They right. don't think they're good at it. I'm bad at math. Therefore I'm going to be bad at physics. Um, so I was just kind of looking at different pedagogy and, um, how we can enhance the teaching and learning experience for students um, and faculty members too. So yes, from 
the academy, I went out to Kansas State University in Manhattan, Kansas. So I was there uh, for three years. So the nice thing is I had a master's in hand. So some of those credits counted toward the PhD. Uh, that's another thing you have to make sure going into one of those programs that they understand that as a military member, I'm on a tight timeline. I can't, you can't have me forever, right? Sometimes you have grad, people who are grad students forever or they become postdocs. And yeah. it's like, you can stay in that world for a very long time. And I had to make it clear. I have three years uh, and I actually, um, I was looking into going to CU Boulder and told them the same thing. I have, I only have three years. I'm coming in with a master's, but I still only have three years. And they were very frank with me. And they said, you people typically can't complete it even with the master's in three years. I said, thank you for being on it. I didn't want to get trapped into something that I wouldn't be able right. to complete. So um, Kansas State was great. I had a wonderful advisor there. Um, had my first daughter when I was a graduate student in about the last um, seven or eight months of the program. So I was all but dissertation. So I had um, defended my proposal, collected all the data and um, just had to write it all up, analyze it and write it. And so a lot of my peers thought I was crazy for having a child in the middle of a PhD program. Right. But from a military standpoint, that was probably the most freedom I'd ever had. Just being a student, I could, I was on my own schedule, didn't have to show up to a 6 a.m. military formation or something like that. Um, you know, be, being seven months pregnant or something, because you're still expected to do those things. Um, and so for me, th that was like a the prime time. Um, and my husband was gracious enough to step away from work after our daughter was born so I could focus on finishing this degree on time. And uh, and he stayed home with Gwendolyn and my eight-year-old um, for a about the first seven, I think seven months or so of her life, um, which I think they have a very special bond now as a result of that uh, as well. So, and you know, Gwen, because you do. have her uh, in your class, your second graders this past year. My volunteering at the second grade has been fantastic. <laughs> She's one of the fun ones. Actually, all of them are pretty darn fun. That's good. Yeah. Uh, if he gives you any trouble, you let me know. She <laughs> has not given any trouble as far as I There's very good. few that, that are, that give trouble to me. Okay. I'm, you know, kind of, yeah, you're not the teacher. I'm not the teacher. Yeah. I'm just Mr. Tom. I just come in there and try to have fun. That, that's good. Um, and I, I can relate my, well, sort of relate. My wife, uh, when she was working, she found out, we found out she was pregnant about the week of her first intensive nurse practitioner program. Oh my so gosh. that was an 18 month program. And so mm -hmm. she had Thomas, our oldest, and we had to bring him, if I remember correctly, into the Marion pediatric office where she was doing her clinicals to feed. Oh, yep. As as mm -hmm. a you know, as a, a newborn baby. And then she would go to Vanderbilt, um, Tennessee and and do That's her nice. her classes on the weekends. And so I would be there in a in a you know, a stroller pushing around Nashville, uh, just sightseeing, and then popping into classes and her feeding and then yep. disappearing. And oh yeah, know all about that breast yeah. pumps. Hey, this is the real world. Not afraid to say it. Yeah, <laughs> it's being a working mom. Um, Patrick here with me on a. I was I attended a conference and he and Gwen flew out, and uh, I think she was probably I was still in grad school. I think she was, gosh, probably only three or four months old. And I didn't, I got lazy. I didn't want to pack the big breast pump. So I just brought a hand pump 
and a thing did not really work very well. I could not get anything. And so he was having to do exactly what you were doing, drive or meet me during the breaks of this conference. Yeah. And I had to um, find like a vacant room somewhere. They didn't have, I asked if they had a lactation room and of course they felt really bad. They didn't, it's still kind of a new thing that we're normalizing yeah. now. And, uh, but the women there found me that I ended up getting this like huge, like this, like big classroom all to myself. And I remember Patrick called me. He's like, she's crying. I need you to come out to the car now. <laughs> so, um, can't control, can't control everything. Yep. Um, but, uh, yes, yeah, so I've been there. <laughs> all right. So then let's see. So you, you get the, the PhD and it's in curriculum instruction. Mm -hmm. Your interest is in the the education uh, of physics mm -hmm. students yep. and and the faculty helping them to do a better job yep physics education research yep so we're looking at a, a teaching one particular teaching strategy um, which is called just in time teaching it's kind of like a flipped classroom idea yep. where you expect the students to like actually do the reading and like prep work before they come to class so they can come with questions instead of me just regurgitate everything that they supposedly read the night before, um, which, uh, so I was looking at how well the fidelity of that implementation in the classroom. And I did the research and the data collection at the Air Force Academy. So I went out there for a month um, and interviewed students, faculty members, observed classes, um, did some survey research and, uh, and they were implementing it quite well out there, but it didn't come without some trade-offs. You know, do you make they had um, what we called pre-flights. So kind of like a pilot has a pre-flight check before they take off. We had questions that they had to answer before class. And then based on that, those responses, the teacher is supposed to be able to tailor their lesson. Like, oh, okay, everybody got the first question right. I don't think I need to spend a lot of time on that concept, but they all kind of bombed question three. So let's dig a little deeper in there. So that was also a lot of work on a teacher because you might want to prep everything the night before and have your beautiful lesson right. that you're going to deliver but then in the morning it might get derailed with like, oh, I thought that I thought they'd understand that uh, a little bit better, and you'd have to try to to flex and adjust. So that was some of the feedback we got um, on that. But I thought it was a really really good thing, and they were still. Um, I taught there a second time. Second, you got to fast forward a little bit, but I went and taught there a second time, and they were still using that teaching strategy, the just in time teaching, um, when I returned. Okay. Mm -hmm. So it's good to see that something that you hope is going to be shown to be successful has the evidence to prove that mm -hmm. it's gonna be successful mm -hmm. or it has been successful. And then to go back and see that it's continuing to be used. Continuing to be used, some modifications along the way. You may have a new course director who wants to implement something a little bit differently. For example, should those uh, pre-flights be worth anything? Um, we, they found that if they're worth zero, they didn't do students didn't do them. Even at the Air Force. Even at the, yes, I know they're still they're still college students. Okay. They're still gonna they're, they're humans, so they have their own will. Uh, <laughs> we can make them do certain things, but not everything. Um, but then if you make them worth too much, the argument is well, they're not actually they haven't even learned the material yet. Like, so how can we grade them harshly on something that they really haven't had a lot of um, you know, supplemental instruction with? So there's there was kind of a, a balance, yep, of the percentage of their grade that that particular assignment could be worth where they take it seriously enough to not just, you know, randomly pick answers or randomly enter answers. So, yeah. Good. That's neat. That's really neat stuff. Um, so then do you end up in Southern Illinois next? 
No, from there, let's see, Colorado Springs. Okay, first time um, from there, I, um, okay, PhD, so PhD program. Uh, from there, I went to San Antonio, Texas. Okay. And I was stationed at the Air Force Personnel Center. Where there's a lot of the cyber stuff that's housed. There are some, yeah, I have a friend, she was actually working on a, a master's degree program um, in cybersecurity on the side. She's not a, she was, she was an engineer by trade, uh, but she wanted it when she, she's kind of teeing herself up for when she got out of the Air Force um, to go kind of more that route with mm -hmm. cybersecurity. Um, so at the Air Force Personnel Center, I was um, an assignments officer, so I would relocate and pick assignments for other scientists in the Air Force. Oh, okay. um, so other all over the country and the world. We have okay. yeah, we have some. There aren't many overseas, but we do have a handful of um, billets. We call them or jobs. Um, some in Germany, Hawaii. Um, there are some other um, locations out there that I didn't even know. Uh, they're data masked um, for based on the, the mission. We have some nuclear missions that um, not everything is releasable. And so, yes, matching folks um, and their families, it's a family affair um, to different assignments and taking, trying to keep in mind their career progression, um, but also to make sure they're getting their experience to continue to build their resumes and um, their professional development and also try, try our best to keep them happy too. Um, there are some less desirable locations out there, sure. um, but we try our best to accommodate um, personal desires, but also the needs of the Air Force as well. So um, so that was one of my jobs. Um, did that for a year and a half. The last six months of that job I deployed and I went to Kosovo. So that's a small Eastern European country, um, kind of near uh, Serbia uh, was the kind of who they were having some troubles with. So when uh, Yugoslavia broke up and all these small Eastern European countries um, stood up, then uh, people like Kosovo, uh, Serbia still thinks that they're a province of Serbia. Um, okay. And so while Kosovo is recognized by many countries in the United Nations, Serbia does not recognize Kosovo as an independent nation. And recently in the news, um, there was some, I don't say saber rattling, but there was some, um, some disgruntled people on the border um, between Kosovo and Serbia. Um, and so NATO troops are stationed there as a peacekeeping mission and just, you know, kind of try to um, keep the peace for lack of a better word. Right. Um, but it's tough. It's a, a poor country. Uh, it's a very, it's becoming an aging country. A lot of the youth, because there, there isn't a lot there um, for employment, for example, they, when I was there in 2016, long-term unemployment was like 60% of the population wow. of the working population. Um, so a lot of young people are leaving to go to other European countries. And then from what I understand, a lot of times they'll send money back to parents who, you know, don't want to leave their homes. Right. Which I understand. Yeah. Um, so some, some, um, you know, areas for improvement, I guess, uh, there in Kosovo, but people, the locals, from what I when I was out, appreciated the NATO troops being there. Um, they, you know, tried to support. Um, there, so you were there as a NATO. Yes. Yeah, so we had, yep, yeah, we had twenty. Uh, so still, you know, Americans. We had twenty. There were twenty total, twenty nine total troop contributing nations in the K four Kosovo forces, um, which is where you just bring all different countries, and there might only be a handful from, say, like Finland had a, had a few, or you had. Germans, Americans, and Italians were there were many more um, there. And each one had 
had to support a different part of the mission. And so, for example, the um, Greeks who were there, they did a lot of the base defense. So they'd be the people at the, at the gate checking IDs to make sure that you were authorized to enter a camp. Um, the Americans did some border, uh, border patrol. The Germans did a lot of the medical, um, provided a lot of the medical care for the other, um, all the people who were in the country in theater. Um, and what was your role? So my role was to um, come up with the manning requirements from each nation. Okay. So, uh, and that could change depending on priorities that each country had maybe elsewhere in the world or in theater in Kosovo. So, um, you know, we'd say, okay, the Swiss, uh, we need, they, they, um, for however many people they were providing for this one job, uh, they might say, yeah, we are going to have to withdraw two of those troops. Um, sorry, we have, we need to reallocate them for something else. And so then we'd have to figure out, okay, adjust, can they still do the mission with whatever is left? Um, or do we need to see if another country can take that on, um, and still execute it, you know, effectively, um, so that that got um, that Manning document was refreshed um, regularly, um, and so that that was my job, was to, which was really neat because I got to talk to all these different countries, and there were some negotiations that had to be made, yeah. or um, you know, just to make sure that they could still provide um, the safety, security, and freedom of movement for the Kosovo people, uh, Kosovars. Um, during the during the time there, so so you went from a PhD program. <laughs> To, to teaching physics uh, students at the Air Force Academy, and then an assignment in San Antonio, Antonio mm -hmm. helping to um, logistically kind of place, yeah. place match yep. others. Yep. And then you're actually deployed to, mm -hmm. was it? Is it considered a, a combat region? Or? No. So I did, that's a good question. No, I did not get combat pay or anything like that, um, but which is which I was okay with. Um, it was rel relatively, calm and peaceful while I was there. Um, you know, I was able to get off, get off the camp, uh, you know, with groups of people, I wouldn't go out by yourself. Um, but I, I felt very safe. Um, but whenever it's still I was not out. a campus where you're teaching physics. Correct. Yeah. So it's, you can, you gotta be ready to do anything, okay. uh, that the military asks you to do at any time. And the good thing is usually there'll be training associated with that. Um, uh, my training was talking to my predecessor and he, kind of showed me how he, how he did things. And then I, I think everybody tries to improve or make something more efficient, um, along the way. And so, um, yeah, it was, it was fun. I was the only American in my branch. Uh, we had 12 people at the, I worked in the headquarters building, uh, in Kosovo and, uh, yeah, I was, I was the only American. And then, and that like my job would always be filled with an American airman, okay. somebody in the Air Force. Um, and then there were, uh, we had one Austrian, three Germans, two Albanians, three Italians. And I don't know if this is adding up to 12 on it and another, and one Greek, one Greek soldier as well. Um, and so that, that was just a really amazing cultural experience too. So while, you know, we had our mission, that was a, a, a very enriching cultural experience for me um, to, to learn about all the different countries and their, uh, as funny, yeah, just really great stories. And um, it was fun. Good. Yeah. That sounds neat. Um, and I, and, and are all these, these folks from the different countries, 
are they semi-able to communicate in English? Oh, it is all in English. Oh, okay. Yes, I have okay. minor detail. Um, so NATO has two official languages, French and English. Okay. Um, and so there, everybody communicated in English. So another kind of secondary role, I did a lot of proofreading of okay. documentation. Um, and and uh, it was fun, though, because we would always greet every morning. We would greet each other in that person's native oh, language. So kind of learn different uh, greetings throughout throughout as well. But it is it's British English. So you would write instead of, um, you know, realize with a Z, it's with an S, uh, oh, okay. you know, things like that. So I had I had to even learn how to write uh, in British English okay. as yeah. well. O-U-R. Right. For color, honor. Yep, exactly. Neat. So from there, let's get up to what you're up to today. Yeah, I know. I was taking a long career. I've been in for 18 years, so it's a lot. You've done a lot. I mean, the realistic things you've done is so impressive. Um, how did you end up here at SIU with your role as a uh, as faculty and as well as the director of the uh, Air Force ROTC program? Yep. So I, I applied for it. So this is considered a, a command position uh, to be a commander of the Air Force ROTC detachment here or any other university that hosts a detachment. So uh, the next closest one for us would be up at uh, St. Louis University. So SLU has a, an Air Force ROTC detachment. U of I has one. There's one up in Chicago as well. Um, and so that's kind of our, our neighbors here in Illinois. Okay and where you can find ROTC detachments, but we all compete uh, to be selected. So we are competitively selected. Um, you this, put, this is a good job. It's a good job. Yeah, it's hard. It's, it's, it's a coveted job, I'll okay. say. Um, a lot of people um, would like to be an ROTC commander. Not everybody. Uh, maybe I should speak for myself. Um, but for a while, this job, um, this type of command, I'll say, because we also have um, other types of squadron commanders in like a flying a flying squadron or a, a cyber squadron or something like that. Um, and so this is a little different because it's it doesn't really fit in a career field. This is like kind of a tangential uh, command position. Okay. And so like when I was an assignments officer, we would not release our folks to be ROTC commanders. We would say you can't compete um, because it wasn't viewed as an equivalent level of responsibility okay. as, you know, maybe a, a, a core career field squadron command. Okay. Um, and so that has changed the, I have to credit our senior leadership who has placed more emphasis on the importance of developing future officers, which is what we're doing, mm -hmm. um, to say like, nope, that that's a legitimate command position and you're going to get treated as such and credit, if you will, for, for doing that job. So now my career field does release folks, which I'm very happy about. Um, so, you know, you put a package together, uh, it's all, it was my records, you know, my performance reports, a letter of recommendation, actually a couple of letters of recommendation, um, from, I did my, I, I kind of tried to pick that, um, strategically. So I had my PhD advisor, some coming to a university, right. um, just to kind of vouch for, you know, my comfort and how comfort level and how and my performance in an academic environment. Right. Um, and then when I applied, um, I was working for directly for the superintendent at the air force Academy. So on that second tour, um, at the Academy, I taught for two years and then, um, I was the commander's action group uh, commander, or I guess chief director. Um, 
for the superintendent, which as I mentioned, is kind of the equivalent of the chancellor here. So I was kind of helping prepare talking points for him. Um, if we had high level distinguished visitors come, we'd help prepare slideshows and presentations and um, scheduling for when we were bringing um, distinguished visitors around the Air Force Academy. And uh, so I also helped having um, a three-star sign off on a letter of recommendation for you as well. It's pretty high level. Um, so I'd like to think that helped a little bit. Um, and you know, I had my own cover letter, my college and you know, on all of my transcripts from various degree programs. So that all kind of went into a package for, uh, to a selection board. Um, you get added to a candidate list and then you get matched from that candidate list. I was able to put um, some preferences on which schools I was matched to. Um, and so when I was called in, when the selections came out and my um, boss called me into his office, said, congratulations, you got selected for ROTC command. I was like, oh, awesome, sir. This is great. This is exactly what I wanted. Where am I going? He goes, Southern Illinois University. And I was like, where's that? Yeah. <laughs> so no offense to anybody out there. You guys have heard where I've lived. I did not know about SIU. That's not uncommon. <laughs> yeah. So um, he goes, really? You don't know where that is? It's just south of Champaign. And I was like, sir, I, he goes, the Salukis? Really? And so, then you knew, right? And, that, and yeah, I, my father knew about you guys. Yeah. I, when I told my parents I was matched here, he goes, oh yeah, the Salukis. I was like, Dad, how do you know about SA? He goes, Itchy Jones. Mm -hmm. So legendary baseball coach right. here. Um, he used to conduct coaching clinics in New Jersey and my dad would attend his, his my dad was a lifelong um, baseball coach at high school and collegiate levels. So okay. he knew about SIU through Itchy Jones. And I was like, oh man, I need to get with it. Everybody else seems to know about this place except me. Um, but it's been great. Uh, been, I've really appreciated the local community having lived in Kansas where it is a little bit more rural, um, more agricultural. Uh, this was in a, you know, a little bit familiar, somewhat familiar for, to us, um, my husband and I coming back here. And uh, so working with cadets has been a real pleasure. I really enjoy seeing their growth, just like in a class, like in an academic classroom and an academic setting, you can kind of see people from day one and the progress that they can make. That's, um, that's a fun part of this job. Yes, by the end. And, um, but it's neat. I felt like teaching in the classroom, you get you get a snapshot of that like one semester project uh, progress. But now in this ROTC program, I'll it's a three year assignment for me. I'm coming up on my last year here, and so seeing some of the people from over the last two years and their growth and development and the increase in confidence or abilities and skills that they didn't realize they were capable of is right. is really really an enjoyment for not just me but our our cadre and our and our staff who kind of help help build that up for them because you know it's going to lead them in a you know a, a new direction that maybe they wouldn't have had correct yeah the program. yeah and it, it there are tough days too though it's also a responsibility to um, make sure we only keep the best and the people who do have that potential to lead as officers in the air force or space force we do commission into the space force as well and uh so sometimes I have to sit someone down and let them know that this isn't going to be a, an option for them or a career path for them, but I always try to provide alternatives mm -hmm. and I'll let them know it's never personal. Um, grades based. Part of it is grades. Um, 
most of the folks, so grades-based medical qualifications, sometimes they don't pass the medical qualifications, which is out of anybody's control. Um, and usually if they're leaving the program, because it's my decision and not there, sometimes they choose to leave on their own as well for other reasons. Um, but sometimes it's a maturity thing. Sure. Um, and I have to let them know, like, you know, a lot of, a lot of times, uh, you know, people say you can do anything or you can be anything. And I agree with that. If you had infinite time yeah, and we don't have infinite time here, it's a three or four year program. Um, and if by a certain point, you just, you aren't showing, uh, demonstrating, uh, the things that we need to see you do, uh, then you're probably not going to get it, uh, yeah. get it by the time you're out of here. So, um, so I try to make that decision as early on as I can, because I don't want to lead someone on or down, down this path. It's really not going to work out for them. I want to give them as much time to Makes adjust sense. or pivot to a, maybe a different, a different, um, thing to pursue in their life. So, so there's, there are hard days too, but it is a lot of fun. I, I really love working with this age group and this demographic. It's been fun. I agree. I agree. Um, running close. Okay. Just a couple more minutes. I got all the time in the world. Yeah. So do you have anything you'd like to tell the students about um, you know, maybe the, uh, some of the opportunities the, the Air Force or ROTC affords? Um, yeah. So um, depending on the um, class year that we have for folks who are listening, or even if someone pulls digs this up uh, in the future, um, for an ROTC program, we do try to operate off of a three or four year timeline. So ideally you'll start as a freshman, um, okay. but we can get people caught up relatively easily if they come in as a sophomore. And is that for the, the coursework? That you need to coursework, correct. So uh, the first two semesters, sorry, I really the first four semesters, it's one class each semester and it's one credit hour. Okay. Uh, first year is very basic, like Introduction to the Air Force, you know, Air Force history, customs and courtesies, how to wear the uniform, um, our organizational structure and things like that. Um, second year is leadership fundamentals. And so, as I mentioned, they meet once a week for 50 minutes for those first two years. Um, on top of that, we do physical fitness. Um, so we do work out um, three times a week. It's at 6 a.m. So you got to be a morning person. Even if you're not a morning person, people can turn into morning people. Got to make it happen. We have to deconflict everybody's course, you know, classes. And that's the, there are no classes at 6 a.m. <laughs> so we know everybody can make it. Um, and then we have a leadership laboratory and that's once a week for two to three hours, depending on what's on the schedule. And that's where all of our grades come together. So freshmen through seniors come together and we um, go over different, you know, leadership, group leadership exercises. Sometimes we bring in guest speakers, um, talk about careers. We'll do um, casualty care. So like basic, um, it's more than first aid, but it's kind of like basic first aid in a combat situation. Um, other field training exercises and things like that, drill, marching, um, and, and that sort of thing. So that's kind of the uh, on the cadet side of things for the first two years. And then if you stay on and you're selected to continue in the program um, for your junior and senior year, that's where you get a little bit of an increase in responsibility. You'll have a leader, a cadet leadership role courses. The lecture courses go up to three credit hours. So you meet um, either once a week for a three hour block. We're experimenting with that um, or twice a week for about an hour and a half or so. Okay. Um, money is pretty good. If you are an Illinois resident and you attend SIU or John A. Logan, the uh, community college down the road, you are eligible for a tuition waiver. So the state of Illinois will pay for your um, tuition only, doesn't cover fees, um, but 
that can be a significant chunk of, uh, of your tuition bill covered uh, if you're selected for that. Um, alternatively, once you enter that upperclassmen, year, those upper class years, junior, seniors, the Air Force will then pay for your tuition and fees. Um, so with the exception of aviation fees, okay. which are very high, very but the Air Force can train you to be a pilot. You don't have to have a degree in aviation to be a pilot in the Air Force. You can have a history degree or engineering degree. Or some of those side uh, aviation degrees. Correct. Yeah, right. The, yeah, aviation tech, technology, technology management. management, don't need that to be a pilot. Uh, might give you a little bit of an edge in some, some cases, but it's certainly not a requirement. Um, but the uh, Air Force will pay for tuition fees, a monthly stipend, uh, and book allowance. So pretty it's good. a pretty good deal um, if you can stay in long enough to get, get into those good. last two. Yep, yep. So that's nice. Um, now, that's kind of in general. But if you are interested, if folks aren't don't want to wear a uniform, and I understand that that's not for everybody, you might not want to deploy and leave your family. I mean, when I deployed, my daughter was two years old. Um, and so that, that was a challenge, um, but I wanted to go during a time she wasn't going to be old enough to really remember sure. that I was gone. So that was a personal choice, but for folks who maybe are more interested, um, in civilian being a government civilian, there are some opportunities for that, like with internships and I'll leave, leave that with you and okay. I'll send you some files, yeah, um, electronic sure. that you can share with your, um, with your students. Um, so there are, I'm going to cheat here guys and read off my paper, um, cause I want to mess it up. So there's a college internship program. Full-time paid summer internship. There are 40 locations nationwide. You do have to be a U.S. citizen um, and have a cumulative GPA of 2.95 or higher to be eligible. Uh, and you have to be able to attain, uh, obtain a security clearance um, okay. as well. Uh, but they have fields in cyber and information technology, science and engineering, program management, and, and other things as well. Um, so that's good for um, full-time juniors, seniors, or graduate students. Okay. Okay. Now, full-time, the next one, next couple, those are um, two to three-year developmental training opportunities for recent college grads. So if you're a senior and you're about to leave and you're not sure what you want to do with your life um, and you are a U.S. citizen, uh, full-time student now during the application process, same GPA requirement, 2.95 or higher, able to obtain a security clearance, you could apply for this two to three-year developmental training program. Um, similar career fields, cybersecurity, science and engineering, intelligence, logistics, uh, and, and there are others that I'll, I'll leave in this other. Um, and so paper. this type of, um, after you graduate, this type of, uh, whatever is it called? An internship. Before the, the after that. The, uh, the Palace Acquire here, the developmental training. Developmental training. Mm -hmm. So so that's going to get you leadership training and kind of. And job experience. Job experience with. With the government. With the government. Mm -hmm. And so you're like kind of like put on this path for like mm -hmm. a federal contracting mm -hmm. job. You've got a clearance. So it's um, a really good opportunity. I mean, people yes. want to know how they can get in and work these civilian jobs. This is a way to. This is a way to get your foot in the door. Yeah. Yep. And it's paid. And the one, the second one where it's the two to three year developmental training, um, they will pay to relocate you as well, I believe. Okay. So that's another, you know, if you're worried about that. And do they end up on, um, military bases or air force bases typically i think some are on military bases and some might be at, at like a maybe contracting office okay. you know maybe something like that so um but i've got details on that afintern.com <laughs> i gotta learn how to be a better salesperson here um 
I will post all of these and it'll get shared with the rest of uh, the, the students too. Okay, no, that sounds great. Um, but uh, yeah, I think um, just to put a plug in for, for cyber, um, that's where future wars are gonna be fought. And to be honest, they're probably already going on right now. Right. Um, we've, seen, we've seen some um, hints of that. And so we really need talented people who are motivated to help um, you know, defend the nation against nefarious acts um, that are otherwise invisible to, to the common person, including myself. Um, and so if we have talented people who are willing you know, to provide that service, um, then, and you don't have to wear a uniform to do it, I would be most grateful <laughs> for that. Because uh, again, that's a talent that, that I don't have. Um, but there's some like, I mean, there's some like sexy stuff going on. I, I looked up some stuff here. Um, we do have a, a cyber command. So that's a joint command where it's Air Force, Army, Navy. It's all, all of us working together, um, trying to big, bring all of our experts in. Um, but they have, go ahead. I've seen where they get together and they have their their joint exercises, mm -hmm. the red team stuff. And it's yes. pretty cool. It's it, pretty cool to it, see. There's, there's something... Uh, there's a really well put together documentary that was maybe covered by one of the big news shows, but Ooh, pretty neat. I need to look that up. I'll find it. Yeah, share that with me. But I mean, we have cyber combat mission teams um, where folks are conducting military cyber operations in support of combatant commands. So combatant commands are, you know, kind of the the folks out in the, you know, out on the front lines, if you will, um, trying to uh, carry out some of those missions. Cyber national uh, mission teams defending the nation by observing adversary activity, defending against attacks and maneuvering to defeat them. So um, I don't know, there's, I wish I could say I, I could do do any of those things, but I, I'm, that is not my wheelhouse, but I know you've probably got some people out there. We've got some folks who are, I think are listening here and mm -hmm. might, might be interested. And I hope so. And some that'll come and I'll meet for the first time next semester. Actually, we had a uh, a, a Marine who um, came down here from Rockford yesterday to talk about coming here for cybersecurity. Oh, perfect. So, so he'll know, yeah, you might even have some experience with some of this. So. Maybe, yeah. Mm -hmm. So there's, yeah, it's a great opportunity. It's it's, it's neat. Um, and it stinks that we have to have these opportunities. It does. Uh, I know. There's no going back. There isn't. Uh, and I know there's, you know, there are high level discussions on, you know, we have we talk about um, kinetic weapons, so, you know, mm -hmm. bombs and missiles and things like that. And then we have non-kinetic effects, which can be just as devastating. Um, you know, talk about knocking out power grids or something like that, or, um, you know, holding a hospital hostage, you know, hospital records hostage. It's happening right now. Mm -hmm. um, and so lives can still be at risk, even without, you know, a big boom going off. Uh, kind of a thing, which that that's yeah, it's kind of concerning. It, it, it's it's yeah, it's scary. Mm -hmm. I don't know any other way to say it. Yeah. Uh, but thankfully, hopefully, we got some folks out here who yes. will help take care of this. Um, can do it. So to finish up, I have a question. You've got a nickname. Oh yes. Will you tell us about that? <laughs> yes. Uh, so nickname is Hammer. And uh, there was some alliteration with that with my maiden name. So my maiden name is Hewitt. Uh, so I was just the hammer Hewitt for a little while. Okay. And uh, got that when I was working at the Air Force Academy, my first assignment. And um, I'm glad I'm wearing blues today. So this is our blues uniform. You notice it's open collar, short sleeve. We can wear open collar. And uh, you notice you can't see any sort of undershirt. 
Okay. So I went to class one day and right in the front row, I had a student with a crew neck undershirt, white. Um, now I do have an undershirt on, but it's a V-neck. You can't see it. So I walk in and I say, what is that? He got the knife hand. Cause he just, there are things you don't think you'll see until you, until it happens. And when, you know, you're working with a freshman they are still learning, as I mentioned, learning the basics, how to wear the uniform. So what is that? And he goes, he's looking, he's like, what, ma'am? I said, your, your shirt. We go, We're not in the Navy because the Navy does wear a crew neck under their, their, uh, their shirts, their dress shirts. Uh, he goes, oh, yes. Uh, I didn't have any more clean V-neck shirts. I said, okay. So I went behind my like teacher station. I handed him a pair of scissors and I said, well... You can make that into a V-neck if you'd like. And he, his face just dropped. And of course the class is all sniggering and, and laughing. And his class, I go, give it to your classmates. You know, I don't want you to get, you know, cut yourself or anything. A classmate can do it. You can go to the bathroom. Did not think I was serious, but I was 100% serious. Um, so he did cut a V into his shirt. And uh, so rumor, it really wasn't a rumor because it actually happened. But my colleagues had found out that I made a cadet cut his shirt in class so he would fit within the regulations. And they said, man, Jess, you're dropping the hammer on that cadet today. So I got the nickname hammer. Um it was also applied a little bit differently when I was an assignments officer. So I mentioned we only have a few overseas assignments mm -hmm. and those are very desirable. People like to go to Hawaii and Germany. Those are cool places. Sure. Um, and so my branch chief, every once in a while, when we were doing the assignments match, he go, all right, Jess, how many dreams did you crush today? You know, with my hammer, <laughs> uh, because I had to tell them they were not going to Maui or <laughs> to Ramstein Air Force Base. So um, so that's, that's how I got hammer. It, it works for my current job too, working with cadets again and, uh, making sure I'm a big standards. Um, it's very important to me because yeah. I got to make sure that they don't walk out of here looking, sounding or acting like a fool. Um, so I, I'm pretty, pretty harsh on the maintaining standards. So I drop, I do drop the hammer pretty regularly. All right. Good to know. <laughs> Good to know. Um, anything else? I have five questions I usually ask. Okay. Okay. Anything else you want to add or any advice for students? I do. I mean, I have some lessons learned, but I'm going to, I'll see what your questions are well, first. Okay. So do you have lessons learned? Uh, yeah. Okay. I'm going to run through them really quickly. Okay. To elevate your performance, you have to hold yourself accountable. Okay. Okay. So it's easy to set a goal. And then if you follow short of it, like, eh, I'll do it. Soon. I'll do it. I'll do it later. Or eh, maybe I'll just try something different. You've got to hold yourself accountable um, for any sort of goal that you wish to reach, um, which means you have to get comfortable being uncomfortable. So you are not going to grow if you don't challenge yourself. Um, and so I just ask people to not be afraid to fail. Um, that's, that's a hard thing to do. That is really hard. I still struggle with that. Uh, it's easy to take the easy way out or to maybe make your goal less lofty just because there's the safety and security of knowing, oh yeah, I, I can do that. But you're not growing if it's easy. So getting comfortable being uncomfortable. Um, mental fitness is just as important as physical fitness. So in the military, yes, we do a lot of, we do um, harp on physical fitness, um, but you have to make sure you're taking care of this as well. And, and this uh, to make sure that you can still be a, a productive human being. 
Um, and I'm glad that I think the nation and really the military has been placing a lot of emphasis on um, making sure that we're taking care of people's mental health. And it's we're trying to erase the stigma associated with that um, at, at the highest levels. Um, you can't want something more for another person than they want it themselves. I agree. That's a good one. So as a parent, I'm, I've come to terms with that too. Um, but just as a, as an instructor, as a mentor, um, I've seen some cadets, um, where I know they'd be fantastic, um, doing one thing, but maybe they don't, they don't want it as badly as I think they, they could or should. So see the value in it. maybe, yes. Um, but you have to know when to just take a step back and let it's their life. It's not my life. It's their life. Um, so sometimes you just kind of have to let go of that. Um, my daughter Gwendolyn had uh, some advice. I asked her, uh, I usually ask her what she wants to share. And so she just says to never stop asking questions. That's good advice too. <laughs> so I, I, I translate that to remain curious like a child. To just always wonder, you know, what, what could be or what is out there? Or what if I tried this? Uh, you know, what would happen? And then my last thing is to be gracious to others. Another great one. Yeah, just because you never know what somebody else has going on That's so true. with their life. So, so true. Yes. And, and, and being in this career field and just meeting a tremendous amount of students over the years, you just never know. You mm-hmm. really don't. Yeah. It's good. That's okay. Good. All right. Now what are my, your questions? My silly fun questions. <laughs> All right. Five questions. What is your favorite kind of food, cuisine, restaurants? Okay. Do you want to shout out someplace local or someplace? Uh, yep. So I'm going to start with home. So Italian. Okay. Which it's a little hard to find good Italian out here, but I did find, is it Camari's in Murfreesboro? My, one of our best friends is Zil. Yes. All right. So tell them that's the closest thing I can get to like East coast, New York, New Jersey style. Cause kind of home cooking. The recipes were from the owners who were from Sicily. Oh, that's where my, my mom's kind of heritage is there yeah. okay so italian for local i'd say kamari's back home cafe picasso as uh, in somerville new jersey they make uh some of the best uh best italian food in that i've ever had okay so italian italian foods. yes gotcha uh let's see any books movies tv shows podcasts that you enjoy or would like oh. to recommend i like i don't listen to, i haven't listened to it recently I like, I started listening to your podcast. Oh, thank you. So that's a new one. Um, but one I, I was listening to for a while and I've kind of fallen off is Hidden Brain. Okay. Um, and that's, I forgot. I'm trying to remember the gentleman's name. He's from NPR. Um, uh, oh gosh, sorry. I'm blanking on that. I can hear his voice. Yes. Um, but Hidden Brain, he just goes in this really cool kind of like psychological, soci- socio or social, um, Yeah different phenomena or, or just things in the world. Um, and so I like that as a podcast, um, shows recently, my husband and I watched the diplomat. I can't remember. I can't. Tim Brain is Shankar Vedanta. Yes. I had Shankar Vedanta. Yes. So the diplomat. The diplomat. Um, it was had first season. I can't remember if it was Amazon or Netflix. Um, but the woman, Carrie Russell plays the main character. She and her husband are both diplomats. And I feel like I identify with her personality <laughs> very well, just kind of, just kind of, um, very particular about things. And I am, I am like that in my life, almost to a, a fault. Um, and so I, I try to, sometimes you gotta let go, not be so OCD about things sometimes. Um, but I feel like I identified with 
with the main character in that. Okay. Um, I will have to check that one out. This this question's kind of for me. Yeah. So, oh, that's good. And then I, mean, I want to know what people watch. Yes. Like, always looking for more podcasts to, I mean, I think podcasts are awesome because you can learn something which in time that would be, you know, just idle bedtime driving. Yep. Or, you know, Working out, running. Yes. And then book, um, can't hurt me by david goggins i listened to that audio i did the audiobook where he it was him and his aunt, like the author that kind of made it like a work yeah i don't know like a, almost like a podcast actually yeah um so if you aren't offended by uh, foul language yeah he drives uh <laughs> then that and you that's kind of where i got the whole thing about holding yourself accountable he talks about the accountability mirror in that uh and is that the one where he talks about his pull-up challenge Mm-hmm. Okay. yeah and he yeah. rips his hands up yep mm-hmm. that's amazing yeah, yes very interesting i've listened to a couple other things that he's involved in mm-hmm. what a story yes transformation like yeah. and talk about resilience like not giving up on yourself he was from buffalo new york or he was from new york i don't remember which city and but his parents were kind of mm-hmm. on the skirts of law abiding mm-hmm. citizens and and just just an amazing story yeah um cool all right, uh, let's see. If this might be a little less relevant, but is there any That's area good. of technology that you're interested in learning more about? <laughs> yeah, Office 365. Okay. You know what? <laughs> now it's Microsoft 365. They changed their name. Uh, yeah, I'm just that's just a very recent uh trouble I'm having with I the new laptop. That. So I wish, yeah, I wish I could uh crack the code on on that one for my desktop applications. It's it can be frustrating. They've tried to make it too useful at certain times. Yeah. And um and, and I I hear you. I, I I always forget that my teams doesn't start automatically. Yeah. And sometimes I'm okay with that. Yes. But yeah. Blink, blink, blink. Anyway, I won't I'm gonna edit that part out. <laughs> um what would you like to be doing in five to ten years? Five to ten years. Um probably retired from the Air Force. Okay. Um I'm going to stay in for another, at least one more assignment, maybe two. Um, and living with my parent, where long-term plan is to combine homes of my family. So my husband, my two daughters, and my parents, they're in their mid-70s now. They'd like to move out of New Jersey because they're tired of paying the taxes. I know Illinois has pretty decent taxes as well. I learned that moving here. Right. Um, so probably go back to like mid-Atlantic, Virginia, Maryland, Delaware area, um, and as far as like a post Air Force career, um, I, I, I do enjoy academia. Um, I spend a lot of time in it, even as an, as an officer in the Air Force. Um, but I just like, you know, being able to influence people talk about, they said that I have power, like as an officer, you have this power. And I really don't like that word because it can be dangerous, but I do agree that you have influence at certain okay. levels. Yeah. Um, and so I, I like the idea of being able to influence and help shape the future, which is all the people who are listening and and attending college. Um, and just to try to make sure that the people who are going to be the future leaders of this nation, like are, are getting most that they can out of their higher education. That's the most, um, altruistic mm. answer to this question <laughs> it's not skiing and breakfast no <laughs> yeah not on like an uh, a dessert like an island somewhere yeah. um i guess yes that's me like not my daughter tells me i have no imagination 
because I, I am kind of a realist and so like i'm just practical i'm practical this is what i want to do well then the next question is if you could retire today and do anything and you want oh money no option it might be the same thing oh, oh my gosh uh i i I think people probably a lot of people probably say travel yeah. I imagine um which I do I do like to travel been to some exotic places I'm trying to think of a place I haven't been I think um maybe um in Greece is it the um Santorini Island what is it where it's all white the white house houses and buildings right on the coast I know I think it's Santor- I think it's Santorini but great I'd go to I've been to Greece but not there um so that would be a, a, a beautiful place good place to start yeah awesome mm-hmm. well thank you very much <laughs> this has been a lot of fun same here and thank i you. appreciate it and we will share this out with our, our class later today i'll post it for them after i go through and check the levels on the sounds and stuff um but this has been great